Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Today we will be covering the last four chapters of 1st Nephi. We'll start with our slightly more advanced trivia question from last time. What Old Testament prophets were active at the time Lehi left Jerusalem? There are several, although not all were active in Jerusalem. Also, this list may not be comprehensive. The first one is Jeremiah. He started preaching about 626 BC and was active in Jerusalem through the capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians about 10 or 11 years after Lehi left the city. Ezekiel and Daniel were both carried away captive to Babylon during the initial pillaging of Jerusalem just before the book of 1 Nephi began. Habakkuk and Nahum were both active around this same time. But I don't know whether they were active or in Jerusalem when Nephi's story began. If you know, let me know at bomjourney at gmail.com. All right, so in today's episode, we're going to wrap up 1 Nephi, covering chapters 19 through 22. Sometime after arriving in the Promised Land, the Lord commanded Nephi to make plates from ore so he could write a record of his people. At the time, Nephi didn't know that God would later ask him to make a, a second set of plates. So his first plates contained some of his prophecies, his father's prophecies, his family's genealogy, and their journey through the wilderness. They also included a history of his people in the Americas, their wars, contentions, and destructions. Nephi instructed his people to continue updating this record after his death, handing the plates down from one generation to the next, or from one prophet to the next until Lord commanded them to do differently. Roughly a thousand years later, when Mormon was writing his comprehensive history of the Nephites, he wrote a summary of that set of plates and called it the Book of Lehi. It covered Lehi's departure from Jerusalem down through approximately King Benjamin's reign. And it was permanently lost when Martin Harris asked Joseph if he could borrow the 116 translated pages so he could show them to his wife. She was worried because Martin was using their money to help fund the Book of Mormon's translation, and Martin had absolutely nothing to show for it. So, after much pleading for Martin, Joseph gave him 116 of the pages that had been translated. Martin took them home, and they were never seen again. Fortunately, Nephi had also been instructed to make a second set of plates. And after commanding Nephi to make those plates, God told him what to write on them. Verse 3, And after I had made these plates by way of commandment, I, Nephi, received a commandment that the ministry and the prophecies, the more plain and precious parts of them, should be written upon these plates, and that the things which were written should be kept for the instruction of my people who should possess the land, and also for otherwise purposes, which purposes are known unto the Lord. As it turns out, one, quote, wise purpose for making the plates was that they covered roughly the same time period as the first plates that Nephi made, which were the book of Lehi, lost by Martin Harris. 
Mormon, in the book Words of Mormon, discussed his decision to include the plates when he already knew they covered the same time period as Lehi's plates. He said, starting in verse 5, Wherefore I chose these things to finish my record upon them, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi. And I cannot write the hundredth part of the things of my people. But behold, I shall take these plates, which contain these prophesyings and revelations, and put them with the remainder of my record, for they are choice unto me, and I know they will be choice unto my brethren. And I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come. Wherefore, he worketh in me to do according to his will. Going back to Nephi, God instructed him to keep a record of his ministry and for his successors to record their ministries and also to keep prophecies which he considered to be most plain and precious. The second set of plates that he was making was smaller and was intended for the instruction of his people and also for the wise purpose known only to the Lord. We have this record today as 1 Nephi, 2 Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, and Omni. These plates were not Nephi's journal or diary. He didn't finish writing them until after his family had arrived at the Promised Land, and he had already finished writing his first history on the other plates. We might feel like Nephi omitted a lot of details from his story, like whether they met anyone else while crossing the Arabian Peninsula. Things would like to know, but that's because he had already covered those things on his other plates. The smaller set of plates was reserved for important spiritual matters, as he said in verse 6, Nevertheless, I do not write anything upon the plates, save it be that I think it be sacred. And now if I do err, even did they err of old, not that I would excuse myself because of other men, but because of the weakness which is in me, according to the flesh, I would excuse myself. In that verse, Nephi seemed concerned that he might accidentally leave something out, that he might not recognize the importance of something and ignore it. For example, the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem hadn't recognized the importance of the coming Messiah. Going further in verse 7, he says, For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and soul, others set it not and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught and hearken not to the voice of his counsels. Not only did the religious community of Nephi's day consider the Savior unimportant, but so would those at the time of Christ's mortal ministry. Verse 8. And behold, he cometh, according to the words of the angel, in six hundred years from the time my father left Jerusalem. And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Because of his loving kindness and his long-suffering towards the children of men. This person that Nephi was describing, the man who allowed himself to be scourged and beaten and spitten upon, was the same, quote, God of our Father, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt and preserved them in the desert. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he gave himself up as a man into the hands of wicked men to be lifted up and crucified. But then Nephi spoke of other prophets who hadn't overlooked the Savior. Zenoch testified of Christ's deliverance into the hands of the wicked. Nehem described his crucifixion and Zenos prophesied that three days of darkness should signal his death unto those on the isles of the sea, especially those of the house of Israel. He continued quoting the prophet Zenos in verse 11. For thus spake the prophet, 
the Lord God surely shall visit all the house of Israel at that day, some with his voice because of their righteousness, unto their great joy and salvation, and others with thunderings and the lightnings of his power, by tempest, by fire, and by smoke, and vapor of darkness, and by the opening of the earth, and by the mountains which shall be carried up. The prophet Zenos further prophesied what would befall the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who had, quote, despised the Holy One of Israel. They would be scourged, cursed, and hated among all nations, and wander and perish. But when the day came that they would no longer turn their hearts against the Holy One, he would remember his covenants with them. He would remember those on the Isles of the Sea, and all of the house of Israel. And, per Zenos, he would gather them from the earth's four corners. Nephi concluded chapter 19 and introduced the following two chapters, saying, verse 22, Now it came to pass that I, Nephi, did teach my brethren these things, and it came to pass that I did read many things to them, which were engraven upon the plates of brass, that they might know concerning the doings of the Lord in other lands, among people of old. And I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. Then Nephi began the next two chapters, 20 and 21, in which he taught his brothers from Isaiah. Fortunately for us, his brothers, as we often do, struggled to understand Isaiah. So he explained to them what it meant. I've wondered if Isaiah's words had special significance for Nephi personally, or if he simply considered them good for his brothers to hear. Either way, he enjoyed them, and I've always wondered why he found them so interesting. Was it because they gave a nice summary of past and future events? Or was it like including hymns from a hymn book, where you just simply enjoy how it's presented? Or did he feel a deeper connection? For example, did they poetically verbalize his own relationship with the Savior? Let's go ahead and jump straight in. Chapter 20 begins with Isaiah addressing his covenant people. Despite being baptized, making oaths in the Lord's name, and referring to themselves as his holy city, they were not righteous. Instead, they were obstinate and proud. Have you ever wondered why God gives prophecies? Well, in verse 5, he explains. He says that he foretells events that he will cause to happen so that his people will not attribute them to their idols or graven images. Verse 5, And I have even from the beginning declared to thee, before it came to pass, I showed them thee. And I showed them for fear lest thou should say, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image and my molten image hath commanded them. But, despite such efforts, the Lord's people did not listen to him. They were transgressors, quote, from the womb. But he chose to defer his anger and refrained from cutting them off. Did Nephi identify with this notion of being a transgressor from the womb? In 2 Nephi 4, he lamented his own mortal weakness and tendency to sin. Perhaps he saw Isaiah's message as applying to his own salvation and not just that of Israel. Much of Isaiah's writing was poetic. Although this is lost in the English translation, we can still see hints of it. For example, a lot of phrases appear in pairs or couplets. Quote, Thy seed also had been as the sand, the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. Or, Go ye forth to Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. Or, He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. Basically repeating the same thing twice. 
A modern reader might see these pairs of phrases as repetitive, but in the original language, it was probably poetic. Perhaps these paired phrases even rhymed, making them easier to remember. I remember an article that discussed this form of poetry called parallelism. Here's what it says. The prophet Isaiah wrote in parallelistic structure. There are approximately 1,150 poetic parallelisms in the book of Isaiah. Parallelism is a literary device where one concept is expressed in two or more different ways in adjoining lines. To illustrate parallelism, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's from Isaiah 1.18. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Chapter 21 begins with Isaiah's words about his mortal mission. Verse 2, And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. Although God appears to be addressing Isaiah in the following verses, he might also be addressing the Savior. Verse 5, And now saith the Lord, that formed me from the womb, that I should be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. I like the imagery of the next few verses. Israel or or Nephi or us may feel abandoned by the Lord sometimes, but such a feeling is unjustified. Verse 14, But behold, Zion hath said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my God hath forgotten me. But he will show that he hath not. For can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee, O house of Israel. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continuously before me. I read some Jewish commentaries on these verses. Each verse in the Old Testament, as it turns out, has several pages of analysis and commentary. And I looked at them wondering, what would they do with verse 16? To to a Christian reader, the phrase, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, makes us immediately think of the crucifixion what would a rabbi think? So the rabbinical community saw it differently. For example, some addressed the prevalence of tattoos at the time, or they discussed putting an image of a loved one or place of worship on your hand. But not surprisingly, none of them referenced the crucifixion. Generally speaking, though, Isaiah is tough. First, there's a need to figure out what the words mean. The rhythm and structure and phrasing are very different from everyday language making it harder to follow. Second, you need social and historical context to understand what Isaiah is talking about. Third, his writings are symbolic, so even if a reader makes sense of the words and understands the historical context, they might not understand what the story symbolizes. When we get into 2 Nephi, we'll cover some of those things in more detail. For me, though, reading Isaiah is like 
listening to music, or maybe like being a little kid listening to the grown-ups talk to each other, you know, where you pick up occasional phrases and words, but a lot of it goes over your head, but it still makes you feel happy. Chapter 21 ends with Isaiah asking whether we can escape justice. Verse 25 answers, Yes, the Lord can help us escape the captivity that we bring upon ourselves. Verse 24, For shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captives delivered? And now verse 25, But thus saith the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. In chapter 22, after hearing Isaiah's words, Nephi's brothers asked him the same question they asked in 1 Nephi 15. Are we talking about spiritual things or physical things? Nephi answered that Isaiah's writings discussed temporal and spiritual things, and then he explained what the previous two chapters meant. My frustration with Nephi is that he jumped straight to the conclusion and to the final explanation. I'd feel better if he helped us connect the dots rather than just moving along to the final picture. But honestly, I don't, I don't know that there's really a way for us to see all the symbolism. Nephi had seen a vision and already knew what was going to happen. And if you already know what's going to happen, Isaiah apparently makes sense. In 2 Nephi 25.7, Nephi explained that we'll understand Isaiah's symbolism once the events that they symbolize have happened. Here's what he says in the second half of verse 7. Nevertheless, in the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they shall come to pass. You know how it is when you watch a movie for the second time. Once you know how it ends, you notice clues and symbols and metaphors scattered throughout the whole movie. But since you didn't know how the movie was going to end the first time, you just focused on watching the show. It wasn't until you went back and watched it a second time that you were able to piece it all together. Well, thanks to his vision, Nephi had already seen the movie, so to speak. So he recognized patterns and knew what Isaiah was foreshadowing. Joseph Smith had similar experiences. Thus, in the church's general conference on April 8, 1843, he said the book of Revelation was one of the plainest books ever written. Going back to Isaiah now. Nephi explained that Isaiah was describing the house of Israel being scattered and hated. After they were scattered, the Lord would raise up a great nation from among the Gentiles, America, which would scatter Lehi's posterity. Then the Lord would do a great work among the Gentiles, which would be of great worth unto Lehi's descendants. The Lord would, quote, make bare his arm, which I interpret to mean become conspicuously involved in gathering scattered Israel and making covenants with them. Those who were not the covenant people would war among themselves and the great and abominable church would tumble to the earth. So when will the destruction of the great and abominable church happen? Verse 15, For behold, saith the prophet, the time speedily cometh, that Satan shall have no more power over the hearts of the children of men. For the day soon cometh that all the proud and they who do wickedly shall be as stubble, and the day cometh that they must be burnt. From that verse, it sounds to me as though it will happen just before the millennium. Continuing in verse 16, For the time soon cometh that the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon all the children of men. For he will not suffer that the wicked shall destroy the righteous. Wherefore he will preserve the righteous by his power, even if it so be that the fullness of his wrath must come, 
and the righteous be preserved, even unto the destruction of their enemies by fire. Wherefore the righteous need not fear, for thus saith the prophet, they shall be saved, even if it so be as by fire. But, as Nephi told his brothers, Isaiah was talking about both temporal and spiritual things. When he said that the righteous need not fear because they would be saved even as by fire, was he talking spiritually? Is there some symbolism there about the Savior using baptism by fire or the gift of the Holy Ghost to save us by purging us from sin? Nephi concluded with a warning to his brothers in verse 30. Wherefore, my brethren, I would that ye should consider that the things which have been written upon the plates of brass are true, and they testify that a man must be obedient to the commandments of God. Wherefore, ye need not suppose that I and my Father are the only ones who have testified and also taught them. Wherefore, if he shall be obedient to the commandments and endure to the end, he shall be saved at the last day, and thus it is. Amen. And that's all we have for today. And now we'll end with a trivia question. This one is also a little more advanced. In the Book of Mormon, the time stamp for arriving in the Promised Land is given as roughly 589 B.C., but Nephi doesn't specify how long they were in the Land of Bountiful or how long it took them to cross the sea. So why is 589 B.C. the estimated time of their arrival? We will see you next time.